Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keithley. I direct the Bush Center for Faith and Culture, located on the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. John Hammett about the new edition of his book, Foundations for Baptist Churches, a Contemporary Ecclesiology. Dr. Hammett has served as both a pastor and a missionary, and he is currently serving as senior professor of systematic theology, and he occupies the John Dagg Chair of Systematic Theology here at Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Dr. Hammett is also a scholar of theological anthropology, which we will discuss with him in another episode. So be sure to also catch that episode as Dr. Hammett shares with us a biblical understanding of humanity and how that understanding impacts our view of society, gender relations, and our culture. Dr. Hammett, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So why Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches? Why did you write the book? Well, originally in 2005 when I wrote that book, there was nothing quite like that on the scene in uh, Baptist life. Since then, there have been a couple of books that touch on similar areas, uh, but at that time, there's no book like that. Also, and this is something that should be of intrinsic importance to all Baptists. Ecclesiology is our distinctive, our reason for being. This is where most Christians live their life at, in the local church. And I saw several, I thought, important problems in Baptist churches that I thought I could address in that book. So that was the impetus for writing the book originally. Now, uh, a few years ago, I wrote a second edition because several things have changed and my understanding has grown in some areas. And so in the second edition, I have a separate chapter on church membership, privileges, responsibility, importance of that issue. So there's a, a new chapter in there. I incorporate a little bit more in terms of Old Testament background to the church in an earlier chapter. And I've also become convinced that the most important image for the church is not body of Christ or people of God or simple Holy Spirit. Most important pervasive image is that of family. Uh, we call God Father, each of the brothers and sisters, and the importance of that has been growing upon me, so I emphasize that more. And another important thing was the, the change in the, the cultural context in which churches are operating. When I wrote my book uh, back in 2005, the SBC was still growing, very small increments, but we were still growing. The last 13 years, we have been declining, and this year somewhat significantly. And so we're in a different context. For the first time in my lifetime, I'm a member of a declining denomination. And the context in which churches are operating has become much more difficult in numerous ways. We all heard about the rise of the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation, changing uh, understanding of sexual relationships, those types of things. So the context in which churches are operating has become much more complex and much more difficult. So I felt the need for a second edition. It's interesting that you talk about the changing cultural climate in which uh, we 
are in and that is different from the first edition of your book. Uh, and the change, or the addition to the new edition, uh, one of those changes is a stronger emphasis on church membership, or a chapter that explains the importance of church membership. I take it that those two things may not be unrelated. We live in a culture in which commitment seems to be something people are hesitant to give uh, to institutions. Why should a, a young Christian feel the need or importance of, a, of an official or an actual church membership? Why isn't it enough to just attend a lot? Yeah. Well, I, I kind of compare this to the issue of marriage. Why isn't it enough to just love another person why jump through all these hoops and ceremonies and actually get married? Why not just live together and those types of things? So I think the church membership is something like that. If you love the bride of Christ, and you should, and you're involved in that bride of Christ, and you should be, why would you not want to formally affiliate and say, yes, this is, this is where I stand. These people are important to me. This is where I live out the one another's of the Christian life, loving, praying for you. You can, can't deal with everyone. So someone, if you're going to obey those commandments, loving, teaching, admonishing, encouraging, building up all those one another's, where will you do that? In the context of a local church. And so I think and Jesus calls all those who belong to him and to belong to his body as well. So we've been using the word church a number of times so far in this podcast. How do you define the church? What do you understand to be the biblical understanding what is the biblical definition of a church? Well, I would say it's a, a body of believers who are obeying Christ, and that would involve baptism and obeying him. But especially, I think a church is distinguished by being involved in five functions I see in Acts 2. Uh, they teach, they're involved in teaching, the apostles' teaching. So biblical teaching, fellowship, worship, service, and evangelism. I call those the, the five essential functions of a church. There's lots of people with different uh, labels for teaching. You could call that discipleship or other things like that. But I think those five things in Acts 2 are meant to be things that churches do. So a, a group of people who assemble together, they're, they're followers of Christ. They're seeking to obey him. And they say, we want to commit ourselves to doing these five things together. They see themselves self-consciously as church seeking to obey Christ in these ways. I think that's what you, when you have a church, a group of people, believers in Christ, baptized believers, following Christ, seeking to do those five things, not simply with college students, not just simply with young people. I think there's an, an extended age range for churches that they can't restrict themselves to one type of people. Parachurch groups can't. Churches can't. Churches are meant to be open-ended in terms of age range and have these type of five minutes. They can't do just one. The church is called to be the, the generalist. And so I, I have a, a good metaphor for church, period church. The period church is the specialist. Uh, the church is general practitioner. All for, for all God's people, all types of ministries. Well, that brings up a couple of, of interesting thoughts or uh, notions. First, Let's say that, you know, I've started a Bible study in my garage or in my bonus room. We have met there. It's grown. We're just, it's just remarkable. 
just how the Lord has blessed. Now we have uh, the room is full and uh, we've seen people come to faith. Is that a church or what would my group of people need to do in order for us to move from a home Bible study to definition of a, of a home church? Well, again, seek to recognize yourself as church and do those five things together. So we're not going to be an appendage to some larger body where we get teaching. We're going to do, do our, our Christian life here in this body. All those things, teaching, fellowship, worship, service, evangelism, do that as this local body of believers. Don't you think that it goes back to what you were talking about on church membership? There has to be uh, a deliberate covenantal relationship with one another that they've entered into this yeah. commitment to be accountable to the Lord and to each other as a local body of Christ. Yes, yeah, saying this is where we're going to do all those things the Bible tells us to do. Loving, caring for, encouraging, praying for. This is where we're going to do that. And, of course, you're talking about people. And I, I'm thinking of several that I have had them say in one way or another to me that they found the church to be detrimental to their spiritual life in that people hurt them, they found people disappointing, and that uh, they would say, you know, I am fine with being spiritual, but church is simply being religious. And so therefore, I don't see the church as a help to me. So how would you respond to those who don't see the church as an instrument of our sanctification? Well, I would grieve with them that they've found churches hurtful. And there's no denying that there have been some very unhealthy churches that have hurt their members. And so uh, there's no doubt that there's some situations where uh, their experience is, is valid and that they've found churches harmful. I would ask them, well, let's try to find a healthier church. Because I think there are some healthier churches. And then if not, why don't you start one and make one healthier? Because, uh, again, this is the thing. To, to grow to Christ's likeness, you've got to obey those commands that Christ gave. And there are a lot of corporate commands about doing those things one another. And so uh, where are you going to do And, again, if, if you're finding an unhealthy church, see if you can't be a part of making it healthier. Excellent. I've, I notice a statement that you make in the book that I want, if I can, to hear you elaborate on it. You say, the nature of the church centers on God. What do you mean by that statement, and how should this understanding impact the way we do church? Well, the, the first thing is that God gets to define what the church is. Okay? We don't get to do that. Uh, we can't say, well, this is what I think the church ought to be. And know the church is God's idea, God's new creation, uh, His doing in people's hearts and lives. And so He gets to define what it is, what its purposes are, how it operates, those types of things. And so... I fear that quite often what governs our church practice is pragmatics. Uh, what seems to pragmatically work in you know, drawing a crowd or attracting people, and, and especially maybe, in our, but especially I, I think in, in Southern Baptist life, we like large crowds and what seems to work in those types of things. And so I want to call us back and just recognize that, that this is God's doing, God's people, God's idea, and therefore God gets to define what the church is and should be. We have had um, a remarkable year in the history of the church in that 2020 
is the year of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, you know, my wife and I went several months without being able, just like everyone else, being able to worship with my local assembly because couldn't meet in a corporate way due to health and safety concerns. It gave me a whole new appreciation for homebound believers. So what do you think that we, in this new environment, this new understanding of what can happen to us in this kind of situation, what should be the way that we do minister to those who are, uh, even after the pandemic is over, they will still not be able to uh, worship corporately for one reason or another? Well, this was something that, that really did come home to me during this time. Again, I do a small group at our church, and we were doing it via Zoom. We have a woman in that group who for several months now has been homebound with her husband, caring for her husband who has dementia. And she was able to be with us. And she had not been able to be with us prior. And so she said, this is great. I can be with you now and have, have uh, this time. And so it, it made me aware that even after things return to whatever becomes the new normal, there will need to be a, a need for Zoom-based, online-based uh, small groups, uh, online-based worship services, those types of things. And so I think that has awakened many of us to the situation that was true for many people before this. They've been homebound for other reasons for long term. And so this uh, 2020 was not something new for them. They've been enduring this for a while. It just awakened a lot of us to the situation they were already living in so I think that our church will be better equipped and better sensitized to ministering well to them, providing worship services and small groups, interactive sessions for them. So I'm grateful that we've had the, those technological uh, possibilities and been able to explore what they can do. I, I've been pleasantly surprised at how interactive my small group has been over a Zoom meeting. Well, uh, you and I, as uh, faculty members at Southeastern, we have been part of more Zoom meetings over the last uh, few more uh, months than perhaps we want to. Um, so you can only do so many hours of those before they really get old. But you're talking about something that we didn't really have a lot of choice about this. So talk to us a little bit about how we operate in a church in which uh, we understand what our best practices and then we understand what are extraordinary measures. Uh, it seems like sometimes extraordinary measures uh, become the camel's nose for norming of behaviors and activities that we'd say, this is not the way we ought to do it. So walk us through, what are some of the best practices for understanding the nature of worship? And what do we do then uh, whenever we say, well, that's just not an option to us because of our present distress? Mm. Yeah, that's been a, an issue that's been rising in my mind. Like you, my wife and I have not been attending uh, our church's services. We, we've begun, uh, some churches have begun to regather and have some large groups of uh, believers meeting together. We have not done that yet for a, a variety of reasons, one of it which is simply neighbor love, uh, love of neighbor. If I can contribute to my church becoming a hot spot of COVID, I don't want to do that. I can be asymptomatic and do that. So one of the reasons why we have not gathered is, I think, a proper understanding of neighbor love. But having said that, I do think that it's not just best practice, but there's something, with very few exceptions, important about churches eventually gathering. 
Uh, one reason is biblical command, Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. And so there's a, a competing command, love your neighbor as yourself. Here. And so for a, a while, there may be a need to obey that command of loving your neighbor by uh, refraining from gathering and the possibility of infecting someone with a virus. So there may be competing demands there for what, but eventually churches are supposed to gather. So I think there's that command. There's also the promise of Jesus uh, that where two or three gather in his name, he is there among them. Now, of course, Jesus is present with an individual believer. Promises in the Great Commission, I'll be with you always. And so Jesus' presence is with us. But there's something, I think, that God means to do when churches gather in Christ's name. In terms of manifesting his presence, it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4, Paul says, uh, when you gather and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. So I think both presence and power are connected to churches gathering in his name to seek his blessing. I think those are God's usual means of grace in the life of his people, sustaining them, encouraging them. And then there's some of the one another's I'm not sure we can do at a distance. Grieve with those who grieve. Uh, mourn with those who mourn comfort. I'm not sure you can do that very well and not being next to that person. So I think some of the the commands that were given seem to take place in a gathered context, showing hospitality to one another. And then using your spiritual gifts for the common good. A lot of people are, are being unemployed when they're away. They're not yet using their gifts for the good of the body. And so I think uh, those are some reasons why churches need to gather again, uh, not immediately perhaps in the midst of a uh, distress, and uh, some exceptional circumstances where gathering could mean exposure to persecuting authorities and, and those in enclosed countries and situations like that that others are experiencing. But aside from exceptional circumstances, I think it's important for churches to gather. And I think it's important for us to say that because I saw a blog last week where someone was arguing, this has been a good thing. We've discussed how wonderful it is to, to worship in our pajamas and our living rooms and and not to get up and get dressed and drive somewhere. This is great. And no, this is this is a necessary expedient, but not something either best practices or something that should be recommended long term. Yes, I have to admit that there have been a Sunday morning or two that it was relaxing to be able to watch my pastor preach while drinking an extra cup of coffee there in, at my kitchen table. I'll, I'll confess that. But I, be, I realized that this was not really the best thing for me spiritually in the long haul. So we do seem, uh, we, it, there does seem to be in Scripture allowances for extraordinary things. I mean, we would, I think the New Testament model for baptism is a public witness, you know, within there before the congregation. Uh, whereas Philip baptizing the Ethiopian out in the desert you know, he said, well, is that what ought to have happened? Well, in that circumstances, what else could they do? On the other hand, I think Philip the deacon would, would say, this is not, this, we don't want to norm this. Uh, this is not the, the best practices. So it does raise the question, where, where should we perhaps draw some lines or perhaps push back and say, yes, I know that expediency might might argue for this, but there are certain things that we should wait until we are together. 
Uh, I'm thinking now about the Lord's Supper. What is your feelings on that in terms of, can the Lord's Supper be observed virtually? Or is this something that, no, let's wait till we gather together? Well, we had this discussion in several of our faculty, and we had a little discussion of this. And certainly, I don't think it's sinning for someone to remember the Lord Jesus' death by partaking of, of the bread and the cup. I don't think that's a sinful, evil act to do it alone. Uh, and so uh, some churches, especially during the Easter season, did do the Lord's Supper, observing Christ's death and resurrection, thinking about those types of things. But I, I didn't advocate that. And in our church, we didn't do that because we think there's something important about, about doing that corporately. Again, it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul describes the Corinthians, he says five times, when you gather to get, when you come together, you do this. So I think there's something important about the corporate participation. And so I, I've encouraged our church to wait until we assemble again to this, because we're saying something. When we partake together, we're saying we're in this together. I've got your back, you've got mine back. We're saying that we are one body. So we're saying something in our actions there that we can't say online. And so while I wouldn't say doing it online was sinful or wrong or evil, I think it misses an important element of the Lord's Supper. And especially in our individualistic culture where people are prone to think of their just me and God relationship anyway, I think preserving the Lord's Supper is something that we only do corporately perhaps an important thing to remember. I, I agree with you. I think that, and I also agree with the spirit in which you say it, in that I don't think that this is a sin question. Uh, this is a question of best practices. Good people can disagree about this, and, and we still think well of each other when it, it's over. So in this day, this extraordinary time in which we live, in which our denomination has experienced a decline in its numbers, uh, in which we are experiencing a pandemic, and also we are experiencing cultural and social upheavals uh, due to an increased awareness, an, a new awareness of racial injustice, some of the things that have been done wrong. We're Southern Baptists. Uh, you, you occupy the John Dagg chair of theology. And I re bring up his name because he is a, a wonderful Southern Baptist theologian, but he wasn't exactly right on every issue, particularly as it relates to slavery. What should the church be doing now? What did we get wrong? Why did we get it wrong? And how can we make it right? Well... The, the key word there is it, and there's a lot of it's <laughs> that we got wrong. In terms of racial injustice, uh, I feel very keenly my lack of understanding as a white man of what it's like to be a black man in America. And so I think the important thing for me to do is to listen and to hear the experiences of my black brothers and sisters and, and hear the, the hurt and pain in their hearts and things like that, and then lament. I'm grateful that one of the things we did this summer at Southeastern was have a service of lament. I think it's a very biblical response to evil and justice. Um, better than anger, as I think is lamenting. So lament, uh, listen, and then recognize that, well, I hope we can do some things politically in terms of laws and oversight and things like that. Uh, the true change has to happen in people's hearts. And that's where racial justice will really take root. And so I think reflecting that 
and our individual interactions and then recognizing the larger issues behind that that need to be addressed systemically. You know, I want to listen to, to those that are wiser than me on these topics. And so this is something that we have a heritage on that we need to be aware of and sensitive toward. And so I want to be, be careful recognizing that, that probably uh, there's some blind spots in our lives as well. Uh, J.L. Dagg was a wonderful man. He was wrong on that. He's probably right on some other things that we're wrong on. And I wonder what they'll think about us in 150 years. What are the blind spots in our hearts? And so humility, just humility right now. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Dr. Hammond, I thank you for uh, an excellent uh, book. I use the book in my theology classes, and so uh, I appreciate uh, what you write. Uh, this is uh, the Christ and Culture podcast, and we're wishing you a good day. <laughs>